Welcome to the Life Over Coffee podcast, conversations for transformation. Hello, everyone. My name is Rick Thomas, and I'm so glad that you are here. This is Life Over Coffee. Life Over Coffee is our coffee shop. It is a sanctification center that we have shoved up in cyberspace. The street address to get to our place is lifeovercoffee.com. If you have not made your way to our sanctification center where we talk about all things pertaining to life and godliness, please just jump in your car, go to lifeovercoffee.com and walk right in the front door and enjoy our coffee shop. Our resources are free. Uh, We have just hundreds upon hundreds of articles, the same in videos, the same in podcasts, so you can read, you can watch, and you can listen. We also have a supporting member forum. This is a special place for our financial partners. These are the people who underwrite this ministry and cause our resources to be free. In fact, I want to thank Glenn, who recently became a supporter of our ministry, and then Elisa, I might not be pronouncing that correctly, uh, from Canada, but Elisa, thank you so much for underwriting, for being a part of a community that underwrites this ministry that allows us to share these resources globally, and so thank you so much. I want to talk about something that is it will be tense for some of us and maybe foreign for others. And it is a place where we all need to get to, and that is a place of being okay with being corrected by someone. You can do a lot of things by yourself, but sanctification is not one of those things. And so we need the body of Christ. We need at least one other person who loves us enough that they are willing to speak into our lives and to help us to continue in this maturation process of becoming Christ-like. Well, because we are fallen creatures regenerated by the power of God, well, we're not perfect yet, and so there are flaws about us. And that's why having other people around us who can see our blind spots, can see that what, what we possibly can't see, and they love us enough to speak into our life, that is an advantage. To die with two, three, four of those people in your life is to die a wealthy person. But in order to get there, we have to be okay with being reproved, with being rebuked. These are the King James words, being reproved and rebuked. When someone reproves you or rebukes you, that is tough stuff. I mean, I don't think that anybody enjoys it. I don't. It's not something that I look forward to do, like being called to the principal's office. Yay, I'm going to be reproved today. I think it creates a tension in all of us. When when someone comes along pointing out a flaw in your life, it is typically a tense moment. And the reason is, is because it cuts against the grain of Adamic hearts. You see, our normal condition is, is Adam, fallen, depraved, dark, proud, And we're concerned about what other people think about us. We are always in this reputation management business, trying to present ourselves in the best light, not wanting to be exposed. That's a part of the complexity of all of us. And so if you have someone who comes along, who corrects you, rebukes you, reproves you, speaks into your life, 
drawing out some negativity, some sin maybe in your life, it cuts against the grain of proud hearts. And so to be willing to have others to speak into your life is obviously one of the high marks of Christian maturity. And of course, putting these things together, my desire not to be rebuked, but recognizing that is a high mark of Christian maturity, this would be a great time for us to maybe do some self-assessment, some self-examination, and ask ourselves some tough questions as we examine our Christian maturity. And that's what I want to do here. And so I've titled this 12 Tough Questions That Examine Your Christian Maturity. Now, if you want to read this article or listen to the video or watch, uh, <laughs> listen, to the, listen to the podcast and watch the video, just search for that article on our website, 12 Tough Questions that examine your Christian maturity, and you will be able to read, watch, or listen, and that would be fantastic. And so I want to jump right into that, but I do want to share a note that was sent in by my friend Holly. It was so encouraging that I wanted to share it with you. She said this, I love this ministry so much. God literally saved my marriage, my walk, and my family through the truths shared here and continues to use Life Over Coffee to aid in growing spiritually. Thank you for all you collectively do, Holly. That is a fantastic note. Sometimes people leave those notes. In fact, we have almost a thousand of them on our website. If you go to the homepage and scroll to the bottom, there's a view all link and you can go right out to this page and you can read what I just shared with you from Holly. There's one here from uh, Brenda and Tammy and Justina and Melinda and Jason and Pauline and Andrew and Janie Sue and Anna Marie and Michelle and Dave and Judy and Laura and on and on and on. And you can read all of them. People who are expressing gratitude for what God has done in their lives through Life Over Coffee. And the reason I'm sharing that with you is because I want you to know that we are cyber missionaries, that, that we move through cyberspace globally using technology and the internet to take the practical message of Christ all over the world. We reach hundreds of thousands of people every year, and it is a phenomenal thing that God would choose to use this little ministry to impact lives, lives that I've never met, I would never know outside of this ministry. Holly, I, I never knew until we started doing this. Glenn, who recently uh, became a financial partner uh, supporting our ministry, Elisa from Canada supporting our ministry, and so many more. These are people that God has reached. He's taken these resources into their homes, on their devices, and into their hearts, and it begins to work out practically. That's what we do. Cyber missionaries living a nomadic life through the internet, taking the practical message of Christ to whosoever will. And so thank you, Holly, for that note. Thank you, Glenn and Elisa, for supporting our ministry. Thank you for making this possible. All right, 12 tough questions that examine your Christian maturity. Now, in order to get there, we have to start with the bad news because that's what the gospel implies. There would be no need for good news if there, were, if there was no bad news. 
And so in order to get to the place to be rebukable, you have to go through that process of bad to good, and you have to understand how you got there, where you were, where you are, and why it's okay for you to be corrected by others because of the recognition of what God has done and is doing in your life. And because you recognize the, the fullness of God's salvation in your life, you're okay with someone correcting you. Let me explain. And so let's begin with the bad news first. In Romans chapter 3, verses 10, 11, and 12, we have these dark sentences written by Paul. He said, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You see, rebukable people typically have humble and wise perspectives about themselves. They are rebukable because they know where they came from, they know what God has done, and they know where they are going. And so they're not living in that dark place anymore, and they have the hope of the gospel in their hearts, and so they can receive the corrective care of others. They are rebukable because the gospel has rightly informed them about their past, their present, and their future. Being informed by the gospel means starting, that they were helpless and they were worthless. That was their condition before the Lord chose to save them. That is their new condition. They lived alienated from the life that anyone could have in God. This condition was the Lord's view of them before salvation, what Paul was saying in Romans 3. 10, 11, and 12, I, I would appeal to you to memorize those verses as a reminder of where you came from, not, not in any attempt to wallow in, in that darkness, to wallow in sin, to go on any kind of sin hunt, but just the recognition of where you came from as an expression of gratitude because you're not there anymore. They were dead in their sins hellbound, outside God's grace. If you have been born a second time, regenerated, born from above, you're not that person anymore. You are now a child of the king, a person who has gone from the worst possible position a person could be to the best possible place a person will ever enjoy. The, the hokey cliche is from worst to first. And because of that, nothing anyone could say to you is worse than what the Lord has previously declared about you. And understanding this aspect of the gospel, it prevents you from fearing what others can say or, or what others can do to you. And you couple this gospel truth with who you are in Christ now, today, assuming that you are born again, then most assuredly you have nothing to protect. You have nothing to hide. 
If you're not living in, in daily in this gospel truth, then temptation from your insecurity will motivate you to protect and to defend your reputation before others. And that kind of pride will truncate the effectiveness with which your friends can speak into your life. And that is a soul-stunting posture before the Lord and others. We need a few appropriate people to have the freedom to speak into our lives. Now, I'm not suggesting that everyone should have the freedom to state their opinions about you, especially if you are unsure of their affection for you. But there should be at least one close confidant in your life. Those closest to you should have the most liberty to share their genuine perspective of you, and you should be okay with that. You should be receptive of that because you recognize who you were and what it meant. God's declaration meant that you were hellbound, that there is nothing worse that anyone could say to you, and then God regenerated you and placed you in his son. You are now born again, and there is not a statement that anybody can make about you that is worse than what God has already said about you, and you know that you will never be in that place again, and so you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to protect. You have nothing to hide because he who is in the Son, you are now more than a conqueror because your life is hid with Christ. Therefore, if someone corrects you, you can receive it with humility and gratitude even, and maybe there would be a possibility to continue to mature in Christ, but it doesn't devastate you because you've already experienced the worst thing that you could ever experience. And so with that in mind, I want to first lay out six questions that will test your Christian maturity. And again, if you want to read these questions, you're welcome to do that. Just go to the article uh, that's titled, 12 Tough Questions That Examine Your Christian Maturity. And you can work through all 12 of them, but I want to ask you six first, and then I'll get to the last six as I wrap up uh, here. Number one, do you have at least one person who knows that they can rebuke you, that they can bring corrective care into your life? Can you receive corrective observations from them? To die with one, two, or three of these people in your life, you won't have many. Because your inner circle, there's only so much room in your inner circle. And these are the friends that you want. And everybody can't be there, but there needs to be at least one person. Now, if you're married, that person should be your spouse, the person who knows you the best. But if that's not possible, even if you're married for whatever reason, that you can't have that kind of biblical koinonia, biblical communication, do you have at least one person who knows they can rebuke you, correct you, reprove you? Number two, 
when they reprove you, how do you initially respond? Now, maybe it would be good to have a conversation with this person and, and talk about how you generally respond when, when someone, when that person uh, re rebukes or reproves you. Or perhaps you can go back and think of the last couple of times that someone corrected you. How did you receive it? Number three, when reproved, are you more focused on the person who said it and how they said it, or can you humbly respond to what was said? Now, our proud hearts will want to examine uh, what was said uh, and how it was said and who the person who delivered the message uh, before we actually look at the content of what was said. And that is a danger. Now, I recognize, I'll talk about this in just a moment, I recognize that that anybody who ever corrects you is going to do it in an imperfect way. You have never corrected anyone perfectly. You will not be corrected perfectly. I mean, if you try hard enough, you can always find a flaw in the correction that you receive. Sometimes it's big and obvious. Sometimes it's more uh, covert and subtle. But if you look hard enough, you could probably find a thread of imperfection. But that's not where we want to go at first. At first, we want to listen to the content, and so the question is, when reproved, are you more focused on the person who said it and how they said it, or can you humbly respond to what was said? Number four, do you pursue the reproving care of your close friends who have proven their affection for you? Now, the key, one of the key words in that question is affection for you. The person who is reproving you should have affection for you. If they don't have affection for you, you will feel that. It will be, it will be obvious most of the time. And so the person who is reproving, they also have to have affection, and those two things have to go together. You don't want someone rebuking you who doesn't have affection for you. If someone is reproving you who does not have affection for you, that is a conversation that ultimately you might need to have with that person. We don't want to tie or, or to strap our correction on the end of a tomahawk. Uh, on the end of a spear. That's not how to give correction. And so uh, there is a, a way to give correction. But in this particular uh, piece that I'm presenting to you, I want you to think more about receiving the correction. And so I'm asking the question, do you pursue the reproving care of your close friends who have proven their affection for you? Do you pursue that? Do you ask them and that should be a common question. By the way, uh, when, when Lucia and I uh, have these conversations, we have them regularly. Uh, how did you feel when I uh, asked you this question? Uh, how can I serve you? How can I do better? I mean, there's, there's a list of questions that we ask each other around this area because we want to sharpen, uh, not just sharpen one another, but we want to help uh, each other so that we can create that environment of grace to where we can communicate and have the liberty to communicate with each other, especially when it gets down to the level of the need to reprove or rebuke each other. So do you pursue reproving the reproving care of your close friends? Number five, are you tempted to sulk or go into self-pity mode after they reprove you? Now, if you do, and if this is a big temptation for you, what I would recommend that you do is type self-pity uh, in our search box, in our, in our coffee shop, Life Over Coffee. Type self-pity, and you'll pull up an article or two. 
And I would encourage you to read that because self-pity is a big problem. And so if you are tempted to turn inward, self-pity is anger turned inward. And if that is your temptation to sulk or to go into self-pity mode after someone reproves you, then there's an opportunity uh, for some work to happen. Uh, Question number five. All right, so number six. Do you express gratitude to those who love you enough to bring correction into your life? Now, that is a close-ended question. I recognize that, yes or no. Do you express gratitude? But it is something for you to think about, not just check the box, yes or no, but to think about it. And maybe think about the last time someone corrected you. And if, if it's not your habit to express gratitude... Uh, for bringing that kind of care into your life, then that is a habit that you want to create. So there's, there's an opportunity here before you. Now, there is a need for rebuke, and I think it's important that we talk about it because you really want to have a theology of understanding why that we want people into our lives on the behavioral level. We want people in our lives correcting us, the appropriate people who have affection for us, But underneath that, there has to be a theology, an understanding of of why we want those friends in our lives. And so let me start with a passage of Scripture that you might be familiar with in 2 Timothy chapter 3. In verses 16 and 17, the passage says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for four things. In order, notice the sequence, teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That's 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. And so while the gospel is good news, its message implies, as I was talking about earlier, terrible news. There is none righteous, no, not one. And and so we would not need the good news if there was no bad news. And so you see this concept of bad to good in the passage that I just shared with you as, as Paul was talking to his young friend Timothy. Paul lays out four sequential keys to Christian maturity to his friend Timothy. You see, Paul taught that that teaching brings reproof. So the first thing that he says, the Word of God is profitable for teaching. And so you hear the teaching of God's Word. When you hear it, sometimes it's going to reprove you. Reproof. The word reproof in that verse of Scripture means to knock us off our feet. And so that is a picture of the gospel that that is bad news. And so we hear the gospel, it knocks us off our feet. Thankfully, the Spirit of God would never leave us down and out. He is a healer. He binds our wounds. Now, this is something that we want to imitate when we correct our friends. We bring teaching into somebody's life, and it rebukes them or reproves them. It knocks them down, but we don't want to leave them down. God is a healer who binds our wounds, as we read in Psalm 147, 3. And so a careful and accurate rebuke from the Lord, it paves the way for him to implement his corrective measures. And so the Word of God is profitable for teaching. Here comes the Word. It rebukes us, but we don't leave them down and out. It also 
corrects us, which was the third word that Paul used. The word correction means to stand up or to made erect. It could also be like setting a bone when someone breaks a bone. We must know the Lord wants to correct us because God is a fixer. He doesn't want to rebuke us because he enjoys bringing pain into our lives. There is a model here that we can imitate. There is always a redemptive purpose to his corrections. If we don't believe this, then we will be tentative about receiving his reproof, but we do believe it. We hear God's word, we're knocked off our feet, but we know that God is going to bring the healing balm. He's going to correct us. Now, I imagine that some people would be listening to this right now, and they, and they will argue, it's like, I don't mind being rebuked by God. But the correction of sinful people, that's what rubs me the wrong way. And I talked a little bit about that earlier. And this reality is a problem for sure. It would be great if, if we all gave reproof in perfect ways. It would be fantastic if every time we correct, corrected someone, uh, we did it in, in just the, the most perfect and flawless way. But that is impossible among fallen people. Imperfect people, reproving imperfect people, will have an element of imperfection in it. And though there is a lot to say about wrongful rebukes, I mean, we could really go on a tangent there, but that would be my concern, is that people would be listening to this and, and their temptation or their impulse would be to focus on all the times they were rebuked in an improper manner, and there's legitimacy to that. I mean, it's happened to me, it's happened to you, and by the way, we're guilty of doing it too. But I don't want us to go off on a tangent now and focus on all the improper rebukes because it would miss the point of what I'm trying to make here. And the point here, are we mature enough? Are we hungry enough to even find the Lord's rebuke through imperfect vessels. You see, the primary way that God uses to rebuke us is through imperfect vessels. And so the big question here is not so much on the imperfect vessel. That's another day, another article, another conversation. But for today, can we learn anything from a poorly given rebuke? We can if our goal is Christian maturity. Maybe later we can help the person who rebuked you badly. But for today, what can I learn? Even in an imperfect correction, is there something I need to change? And so with that in mind, here's the second set of six questions. Again, I, I titled this 12 Tough Questions That Examine Your Christian Maturity. Here's the second set. Number one, are you more likely to focus on the reproof or the correction? The reproof or the correction? The thing that knocked me down or the thing that's going to pick me back up again? The former focusing on the reproof, that tends to be proud, while the latter, focusing on the corrective opportunity here, that tends to be humble. And so when you receive the corrective care, you focus more on the rebuke 
or the possibility of the correction. Number two, are you more preoccupied with arguing with the rebuker or how to mature in your sanctification to God's glory? A very similar question. One, you can argue with the rebuke, focus on the rebuke, rather than focusing on the possibilities of corrective care. And then this question, we're preoccupied with arguing with the rebuker rather than seeing an opportunity here to mature in our sanctification for God's glory. Number three, do you believe you need others to help you walk through sanctification issues? And I imagine that there are some people who do not believe that they need the body of Christ, Uh, especially this post-pandemic culture. Or there's a subculture that's uh, post-pandemic that is now drifting away from the local church. And again, they focus on all the reasons that they should because the church is failing in this area, that area, and the other area. And many of those points are not even arguable. But also God gave us the local church, and we cannot, will not, should not dismiss it as something invaluable in our lives. Are there problems in it? Yes. But the answer is not to uh, try to get rid of it and, and live an isolationist kind of mindset within technology, uh, convincing ourselves that there is connectivity in technology when in reality there's not, not on a level of quantania, not on a level that we need in order to spur one another on to loving good deeds. And so the question is, number three, do you believe you need others to help you walk through your sanctification issues? Number four, do you enlist the help of your friends so that you can change? Now, these are appropriate friends. It's a small number of friends But one, two, or three, we need to be eager, aggressive, intentional in finding this small, close-knit community that have these reciprocal kind of relationships to where it means a lot more than just corrective care, but it means it does mean corrective care as part of what this friendship context looks like. Number five. Do you believe others need you so that you can help them walk through sanctification issues? This is the reciprocality aspect of what I'm talking about. It's not just a unidirectional relationship where they are correcting you. If you have someone that is willing to correct you but not receive your correction, well, that's not the kind of person that you want in your most inner circle. Number six, would you say your commitment to change is more significant than your commitment to your reputation. As Adamic people, that is our condition in our heart of hearts. That is the thing that we will always fight in this body of death. And so our temptation to lean into reputation management can be quite strong. And so the question is, would you say your commitment to change is more significant than your commitment to your reputation? Twelve tough questions that examine your Christian maturity. Let me wrap up with three final ones. Uh, there's a, uh, they're synonymous uh, in, in a sense, uh, but it will help to put a bow on this, and this will be your call to action. Number one, will you share these questions that I've asked you with a close friend? The 12 questions that I've asked you, will you share them with a close friend? Number two, will you discuss how you can stir one another up to love and good deeds. And then number three, perhaps it will be awkward initially, 
but will you persevere? Asking the Father to provide you with one friend who cares about sanctification as much as you do. If you don't have that friend, pray for that friend. Ask God to bring that friend into your life so that you can spur one another on to loving goodness. We need each other. I mean, there, there may be, there may not be a more important time in all of our lives in this sad culture that we live in. Uh, this is not the time to isolate. And so will you pray for that one friend where you can have a reciprocal relationship with them? I, again, I title this 12 Tough Questions That Examine Christian Maturity. I hope that you have someone in your life where you can talk about these things and you have the reciprocality in your relationship to where you can correct each other with affection so that you can mature together for God's glory. Thank you so much. Thanks for joining us. Learn more and get access to other resources at lifeovercoffee.com.